Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we're concentrating on how Winston Churchill escaped from his Boer prison in Pretoria, which was a major propaganda coup for the British and also had a significant impact on Churchill's later life. Unfortunately for him, he arrived back at the Natal front from his Pretoria prison just in time to observe a British massacre at the Battle of Spionkop. But this is also the battle where Mahatma Gandhi was awarded the Queen's Cross Medal for Bravery as a stretcher bearer. We're going to spend the next two podcasts delving into the details of this eponymous event and the effect it had on our world, which was significant. The battle was etched so deeply in the minds of the English that to this day many football grounds have a stand called the Cop, such as Liverpool Football Club's Anfield. The history is etched so deep that during the 2010 Soccer World Cup, which South Africa hosted, Liverpool football fans travelled to the hill of Spionkop near Ladysmith to commemorate the Anfield football disaster of 1989. But there are other globally important reasons to peer more closely at Spionkop. So, at this point, we're focusing on Winston Churchill, who had been captured near Shivali on the railway line between Escort and Ladysmith in October 1899, and was lucky not to have been shot on the spot. While ostensibly working as a war correspondent for the Morning Post newspaper, he really was more than an embedded reporter. Churchill's father was Lord Randolph, a British lord and well-known politician. Churchill literally took over the situation when his train was ambushed and issued orders to the commander who followed his orders. The Boer's capture of one of the empire's most famous sons was deeply embarrassing for the British commander, Sir Redverse Buller. Once captured, he had convinced the Boers that he should be treated like an officer and went off to live in a prison, which was a converted state girls' school in Pretoria. The rank-and-file soldiers, over 2,000 by this stage, were living in abysmal conditions at a local racetrack, all in tents. The future British Prime Minister was already determined to become famous, and as we'll see over the course of this podcast, much of what he became you can identify in his response to capture. So as a prisoner of war, he wrote a letter to Commandant General Peter Bear, who was in charge of the Transvaal Boers, and asked to be released on the grounds that he was a civilian. He may have been a war correspondent, but when he was taken prisoner, he was carrying soft-nosed bullets or dum-dums. That alone could have led to his immediate execution. But he managed to drop them unseen by the Boers who took him prisoner. The Morser pistol he was carrying was flung aside, but he had a Morser holster on his belt. Hardly a non-combatant. Churchill was an active participant in the gunfight at Chivalry that led to his and 80 other British being captured on Wednesday, 15th of November, 1899. His actions were seized upon by the highly nationalistic British yellow press of the late Victorian era, and they wrote of his gallantry as a soldier, embellishing a tale that was really full of poor decision-making and typical Englishman in the midday sun madness. He was kept as a prisoner in a room of six at the Pretoria School for Girls, which obviously had been closed for education. Prisoner life for the officers wasn't too bad. They were even allowed to sleep outside at night when it was hot. Between him and freedom was a rickety fence and a handful of guards. And they could buy anything they wanted, except firearms, from a nearby shop. Naturally, Churchill bought a dark 
tweed suit. He was thinking of escape. Bizarrely, prisoners could also communicate by letter and telegram to the outside world, and Churchill continued his dispatches for the Morning Post in Britain as a correspondent. He formed an interesting friendship with a Boer governor of the prison called Louis de Souza, a Transvaaler of Portuguese descent. De Souza would arrive with maps and a bottle of whiskey, and both he and Churchill would pore over the latest developments while sipping their beverages and debating the action as described in daily reports. However, Churchill was in a rush. On the 30th of November, his birthday, he wrote to an American millionaire entrepreneur, Bork Cochran, and said, I am 25 today. It is terrible to think how little time remains. By that age, Alexander the Great had already defeated half of the ancient world, and here Churchill was in a dusty school at the bottom end of Africa, in prison. He also interviewed the locals who popped in for visits, bringing cakes and family. At one point, Churchill interviewed what he thought was a mild-mannered boer called Meneer Spierwarter, who was chatting quite amiably until he began talking about black South Africans. In these few paragraphs in a newspaper published in December 1899, we hear the dark future of race relations in South Africa. Spierwarter was critical of how the British treated black subjects in Natal. Well, is it right that a dirty black should walk on the pavement without a pass too? That's what they do in your British colonies. Equal, free, not a bit. We know how to treat blacks in this country. We educate them with a stick. They were put here by God Almighty to work for us. While black subjects were hardly equal and definitely not free in the British Empire, you get the gist. It's the basis of what became known as apartheid. You can fob this off as Meneer Spierwater merely being a person of his time, but I'm afraid the sentiment that drove his malevolence continues in parts of this country and others to this day. Churchill then wrote a second letter to Pete Jobert and swore on his word of honour that should he be released, he'd give a true account of his treatment by the Boers. This time, Jobert took advice from his senior officers and decided he would let this man go, then wrote a letter to be delivered to Mr. D'Souza. However, before the letter arrived, the bumptious and somewhat dishonourable Churchill, who had given up hope of release, ran out of patience. He had heard that two other British prisoners planned an escape and demanded to be part of the group. The two were Captain Haldane, who was imprisoned with Churchill at the embarrassing incident on the train at Chivalry, and a sergeant major, who pretended to be a lieutenant, called Brokey. Non-commissioned officers were supposed to be located at the filthy racecourse. Both were horrified at Churchill's request and refused. They were worried that such a famous fellow escapee would lead to the hounds being unleashed to track them down. Eventually, Churchill cajoled Haldane and Brokey into agreeing, and escape night was Monday 11th of December. Churchill wrote a note to his friend Mr. D'Souza, which he left on his bed, including the line, I have decided to escape from your custody. The night of the 11th, the three were pacing back and forth, waiting for their chance when the sentry nearby moved away. At that point, Churchill was standing alone. His two compatriots were on the other side of the veranda, and he suddenly clambered over the fence, but his tweed jacket caught on the ironwork. The sentry 15 metres away saw nothing, 
and after tugging, Churchill was free. On the other side, he hid behind a bush in the yard of what they thought was an abandoned house. It wasn't. There were men talking and moving inside. Churchill crouched down and waited for his colleagues for over an hour. Meanwhile, they'd realised he had escaped and decided to give up their plans, moving back indoors. Which was a problem for Churchill because he spoke no Afrikaans or local black languages, unlike Brokey, who spoke Zulu and Afrikaans fluently. Furthermore, Brokey had the map, the compass, the food, the water. But Churchill did have 75 pounds in cash, a fortune by the standards of the day, and four bars of chocolate. So he stood up, straightened his jacket, and pulled a hat over his head and ambled to freedom trying to appear innocent. It worked. He literally walked past the guards, who barely gave him a second glance. Churchill walked to the eastern outskirts of Pretoria through the night, looking for the railway line to Lorenzo Marx in Mozambique, what is now known as Maputo. Portuguese East Africa is now Mozambique. It was neutral in this Anglo-Boer war, and once there, he planned to take a ship to Durban. He finally managed to clamber aboard a goods train and hid in empty coal sacks. The next morning he jumped off the train somewhere to the east of Pretoria in the dark. He then walked 15 kilometres along the tracks, dodging sentries and avoiding bridges which were all heavily guarded. Finally, he arrived close to modern-day Witbank, where he simply walked up to a house and knocked on the door, planning to use his cash as a bribe to buy freedom. It so happened that the door was opened by an Englishman called John Howard, who had continued to mine coal under Boer orders. He offered Churchill roast lamb and whiskey before hiding him in the local coal mine, supplied him with candles, mattresses, blankets and, yes, another bottle of whiskey and even cigars. Coincidentally, one of the mine workers was a man called Daniel Dusnap, who was from Oldham, a constituency in which Churchill had unsuccessfully stood for Parliament six months earlier. Dusnap eyed Churchill and then foretold his future. When you go to Oldham again, lad, they'll all vote for you. Good luck, said Dusnap, and he was right. The extraordinary good luck was part of Churchill's destiny, and his South African escapades reinforced his own and others' view that he was destined for greatness. However, the incident also serves to highlight how the Boers were unable to continue the war without using British subjects to continue mining, which was a severe weakness in their long-term strategy. They used men and women who were by their very nature enemies to continue producing material for war while employing black workers as their virtual slaves having already slashed their pay. Well, back at the girls' school, when the guards realised Churchill had escaped, the ZARP, or police sentries, were fired and immediately sent to the Natal front to face the British guns. A few English-speaking Pretoria residents were kicked out of the country, blamed as spies had helped Churchill escape, and Commandant General Piet Joubert was enraged. His letter releasing Churchill hadn't been delivered, but that didn't stop Joubert believing that the man was a villain and ordered posters pasted throughout government buildings in the Transvaal featuring Churchill's face with wanted, dead or alive, and a price of £25 on his head. The biggest damage to Churchill which hounded him for the rest of his life was the feeling that he had abandoned his friends and betrayed their trust. He'd stolen Haldane's idea and ruined their lives. The prisoner's comfortable existence was a thing of the past. No more alcohol, no sleeping outdoors, more sentries, worse food, no newspapers, no visitors, roll call twice a day. 
So, back at the coal mine, where Churchill had been cooped up underground, he'd lost sense of time. Finally, on the 15th of December, as the terrible Battle of Colenso took place far away near Ladysmith, he emerged and once again, with the help of Howard and an English wool merchant, hid amongst bales on board another train. His putt course, or road food, was a loaf of bread, a melon, two roast chickens, a flask of tea, a pistol, and a bottle of whiskey. But no cigars. That would have given away his presence. Churchill finally arrived at the border at Rosano Garcia, between the Transvaal and Portuguese East Africa, and once safely on the other side, pulled out his pistol and fired three shots for the hell of it. However, it was what happened next in Durban that crystallised Churchill in the English public consciousness. When he arrived in Durban, the Natal Mercury newspaper had already published a story about his escape in the midst of a series of terrible events for the British. The battles of Marcusfontein, Mudderafir, Colenso, Sturmberg, what we know as Black Week, they were in full swing. 3,000 British soldiers killed, wounded or captured. And suddenly, the Churchill escape was good news. Or good propaganda. Or both. A thousand people welcomed Churchill at the port of Durban and the crowd carried him on their shoulders to the quayside where the mystique of Churchill gained traction. Like all great leaders throughout time, he was called upon to make a speech by the people, the citizenry, like Caesar, and this created a moment of historic significance. Churchill in Durban, standing on a box at the quayside, cowboy hat from Lorenzo Marx, clasped in his hand. He was photographed, of course, and he was militant. No matter what the difficulties, no matter what the dangers, we shall be successful in the end said the 25-year-old, to rapturous applause. These reactionary republics, he continued, that menace our peace will be defeated because our cause is a just and right one, because we strike for equal rights for every white man in South Africa and because we are representing the forces of civilization and progress. He was clearly excluding black South Africans, because he understood white English speakers living in the country were not in favour of black suffrage. He was a politician's politician, and his speech encapsulates his lifelong character, which was to be loved and loathed. The British were to pander to these sentiments later as they helped form the Union of South Africa in 1910. Blacks were to be systematically disenfranchised in their own country. Churchill was then whisked to Durban Town Hall, where a flatbed wagon had been parked and more photographers waited. Thousands now arrived and he stood again, the very symbol of British nationalism, and said, We are now in the region of war, and in this war we have not yet arrived at the halfway house. You can hear the echoes there of the great speeches he'd make 40 years later. Then he was whisked to a train inside a rickshaw, festooned with British flags, placed in his own coupé, and thousands of well-wishers waved him off at 1740 in the evening. He had been in Durban for just over an hour and a half. But what we know is that as his train chugged towards Peter Maritzburg and eventually Mount Freer, that he was travelling towards one of the British Army's worst defeats in the entire Boer War. It was there that three important figures would cross paths indirectly, Churchill, Gandhi and Louis Botha, who was later to become South African Prime Minister. 
Gandhi would win the Queen's Medal for his courage under fire as a stretcher-bearer, but the extreme carnage he witnessed at Spionkop was one of the events that settled deeply in his consciousness. His future wars would be fought as a lawyer and finally in India after 20 years in South Africa as the man who started a movement against the British overlords using passive resistance as its philosophy. Part of that deeply held view can be traced directly back to Spion Kop. And Churchill would also arrive at that godforsaken mountain just in time to witness the violence and actually took part as a messenger. The Battle of Spioncorp, a steep-sided mountain to the west of Ladysmith, the strategically important town on the railway line between Durban and Johannesburg, where 13,000 British troops were besieged by the Boers, was to become symbolic in so many ways. But that's for next week. Please take a look at our website, abwarpodcast.com, and the Facebook page, abwarpodcast, and you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Till next week, goodbye.